Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale April 20th, 2022. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Jasmine Estrada. Oh, Jazz, Jazz, Jazz. What an episode we have for folks this week. Um, There's going to be so much to get to, but first things first. You were one of the lucky people who won a copy. Oh my God. JLA Avengers. I am. I was very pumped. Um, I frequent my local comic shop pretty often and they got five copies of the JLA Avengers trade and they decided to essentially do a raffle for about a month. They were selling tickets for about five bucks with pretty much all the money going straight to the Hero Initiative, which was great because they had over 200 submissions and they raised close to $1,100. And last night, the comic shop owners did the raffle on Instagram, and I got really lucky and got picked. Congratulations. Of course, this the issue was released in conjunction with the Hero Initiative, and, and I'm so excited for everybody who was able to score a copy. Um, if you have not read JLA Avengers, it's the, gosh, we're approaching 20 years since That's it was wild. initially released uh, by Kurt Busiek and George Perez and just an incredible story. But I wanted to quickly just thank Challengers Comics in, in Chicago um, and give them a quick shout out because they're doing amazing work and I can't thank them enough. Oh, and speaking of comic shops, we want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, comic shops, our pal Mr. Titanium at Mr. Titanium 18. Uh, got the award name quote from one of our previous episodes. So as a reward for that, he asked us to mention his local comic shop, Legion, over in Birmingham, Alabama. If you are in Birmingham area, go check him out. Tell him we sent you. Yeah. All right, let's get into what the heck this show is, because Marvel's Pull List is the official Marvel podcast for Marvel Comics. We're going to run you through all the brand new Marvel Comics on sale this week, giving our picks. We've got three picks. Uh, it's a smaller week for new comics, which is great. If you've got stuff waiting at your local comic shop, pick up whatever's in your in your bin, in your pull list. Um, we've got three picks, a lot of other books. We're going to give out awards where we, we dish out awards and we give a quote that Jasmine picks from one of the comics this week. Uh, we'll get into that. We have Infinity Comics and Marvel Unlimited, new collections on sale. And most importantly, we have a reading club. Who's our reading club guest? This week, we are talking to Tochi Anyabuchi, who's currently writing the Marvel Legends Black Panther uh, miniseries, as well as going to be the upcoming writer on the Captain America book, Captain America, Symbol of Truth, starring Sam Wilson. Um, and we'll get a little bit more into the Captain America stuff in a bit when we get to our picks. But we're going to be talking about a small little book. I don't know if you've ever heard about it, Ryan. It's How dare you? What? Do, don't even I, I go don't... down that road. Do not even. Do not even. <laughs> we are talking about the greatest comic book story of all time, X-Men Executioner Song. And it is a conversation so momentous, so epic, so full of enthusiasm and love and just like unbridled excitement that we have to break it up into two parts. I mean, it is a massive story. It's kind of like 14 issues total. So there's a lot to talk about, a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to be talking about this for the next two episodes. X-Men Executioner song. Hold on to your butts. You're just going to hear me basically lose my mind for a couple of hours. I highly recommend that you read before you dive into our reading club this week <laughs> yeah. because we will get into hyper specifics. Um, it's great. I love it. You know, we'll talk about that more when we get to it. But right now, let's dive into our picks of the week, starting with Wolverine number 20. Uh, 
Jazz, I feel like we need John Cleese to come on and say, and now for something completely different. Uh, you're welcome, everyone, for me not doing a John Cleese or British uh, impersonation. So I held back for you. Anyway, this issue of Wolverine, number 20, is written by Benjamin Percy, art by Adam Kubert, colors by Frank Martin and Dijo Lima, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, and just beautiful all-around work by Adam Kubert and Frank Martin. I mean, we're going to get into it. Let's talk about this friggin' amazing book. We now have an issue that still is very much Wolverine, but it's also full of Deadpool. And yes. we got lots of Deadpool in this issue, fourth wall breaking, silly stuff, jokes. There's He goes to a comic shop and he pulls out an issue of Deadpool number one, New Mutants 98. He got some X-Force in there. He shoots a graded copy of Wolverine number one. Like, there's some really funny bits in here. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, Blind Al shows up in here, which yep. um, there's really funny bits about Deadpool's attempts to join Krakoa, which cracked me up. Every single one of them is so funny. The first like six or so pages have this framing of the panels that it just looks so cool and so weird. And then it's it uses smaller and odd sized panels to tell the story. And it looks unlike any other book. Like these pages don't look like other books you read. And then you, you get into other superhero bits. And there's, there's one part where Wolverine slashes through the page in a way yes. that I... That I made love me it. just get up and go, yeah, like, I oh, love it. That, that page ruled. Yeah. Um, this book is freaking fantastic. Also, one of my favorite moments, so like, this is going to sound really dumb, but like, in that same page that Wolverine is slashing through the comic, one of my favorite things that like, is like an ongoing gag with Wolverine is whenever he just takes the moment to just drink a beer, or crack open a cold one, like respect, but also like Deadpool kind of steals that gag and he is like reaching in like when he, when he's with blind al he's reaching into his fridge and he wants he goes into like grab a beer and the beers are called bub light in reference to wolverine yep. which i thought was great and then we get the wolverine slash yeah. so i'm like thank you for that also who knew that ben percy could write an amazing deadpool i mean ben's pretty damn good so he's so good but like i never knew i wanted a comedy book out of him yeah he's so serious yeah and it still furthers the big plots that wolverine has been dealing with and and a whole bunch of stuff that's been going on um oh my god I didn't even notice until right now that in that scene with Deadpool and Blind Al, the poster above Blind Al's couch is Krakoa Beachbody and it's Wolverine in a swimsuit posing on the beach. I just, I can't even with this book. Holy moly. It is so good. So what do you think of that final page reveal though? Oh my God. So excited. There's a lot of good final page reveals this week. So many. All right, next up we have my first pick of the week, which is Captain America number zero, which is written by Tochi Anabuchi, Jackson Lansing, and Colin Kelly, with art by Mattia De Lewis, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna, uh, and a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous cover by Alex Ross. And this is an all-new start to Captain America, to the new ongoing Captain Americas that we're going to be getting. If you've been following along with Captain America, and especially been reading United States of Captain America, this is continuing that. But now we're reining back in, and we're kind of going back to Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson, Captain America. And if you're wondering how they're going to tag team this name, don't worry. This book explains all of that (laughs) uh, in probably the most humorous way possible. Um, I I liked how fun this was. It it was so much fun. There's a charm to it and a lightness to it that it's not a silly book, but it it doesn't take itself overly seriously while still being a serious title. Right. Like, at, like towards the end of the book, when they're talking about 
how Sam Wilson's also going to be a Captain America. He's like, am I going to be the astonishing Captain America? And then Steve's like, no, I think you're going to be, you're more of like an uncanny Captain America. And it's just like, they're, they're poking fun about it. Like they're, it's very self-aware. It knows what Captain America stands for. But this book shows back-to-back panels, like in a sequence, like that's very intense. Like they're essentially trying to take down a rocket that Arnim Zola shot up into the sky. And with the intent of blowing up the sun, because that is a smart idea for everybody, essentially while they're they're trying to take down this rocket like it's an intense moment and they're both sweating and when i say sweating it's like it's not just like you know little brow sweat it's like they are drenched in it and it's (laughs) like you start to feel that intensity of what's going on and the way it's done in this book just again reminds you that these people are yes they are superhuman but they are human the other thing i wanted to talk about is this is an issue that essentially sets up what's going to happen in the next two books that are happening that are going to coincide in release um, in the future, one with Steve Rogers in the Sentinel Liberty, and then we have Captain America, the symbol of truth with Sam Wilson. And there are some seeds that are planted in this issue that make you go, huh? And that is very intentional. All right, let's move along with our third pick, which is Avengers number 55, which is, oh my God, this is so good. Uh, this is The issue is called Night of the Panther, Dawn of the Hawk. Just great friggin' title. It is by mm-hmm. Jason Aaron and Javier Garon. Colors by David Curiel. Letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And I would be lying if I didn't say that Jasmine and I independently started freaking out about this issue because it's so damn good. And it's like Javier Garon is is someone we adore, whose work we love, who 100%. we've had on the show before. We talked about having him come back on. There's a two-page spread later on in this issue. We lost our damn minds up. I was going through the book and I was like, we should do something about this on the website. So I like took Mm -hmm. a screenshot. I sent it to the Marvel.com team. I was like, you guys should do. And I gave them the idea and they're like, all right, put us in touch with Jason and and Javier. And I was like, all right. So then I sent an email and I was um, emailing uh, Jason and Javier Garon about this comic and how good it is, uh, how much I love it. I want to read a quote here. Javier said, super happy you liked the crazy spread. There was a ton of fun and a lot of references. 79 characters. As much as we could fit in, Team Avengers is the best. And then he he said, you know, like, there's a lot of pop culture references, a lot of fun stuff. So Javier gave us a, like, cheat sheet of all the different versions of Mephisto in this spread. Every, he there are seven images in here of the different Mephistos, like, called out. Every time I would look at one, I'd be like, ooh, that's my favorite. And then I would go to the next one and be like, ooh, that yes. one, no, that one, and this one. And it, oh, just, it's so good. They're this doing... is like the nerdy stuff that like I yeah. just love. And I'm, sure. I am I can't wait for this piece to be up on Marvel.com because yeah. it is so much fun. Yeah. And as much as I love Jason Aaron, the best part is his response to all this was, ha, yeah, if there's anything you, you need from me, let me know. But this was all Javier. Anyway, aside from the spread, the issue is still super terrific you've got a wonderful awesome sequence between black panther and nighthawk um nighthawk is the um the version of nighthawk that was part of the heroes reborn storyline here part of the the squadron supreme of america storyline i know but i love that this story still like builds off of that yeah it's a major turning point for the avengers in this issue in particular for their lineup for certain characters it ties into what's going on in other books i won't give away too much but uh if you're reading multiple marvel comics then boom you'll see it uh it also has the serpent society but 
where they were previously the Serpent Solutions, um, yeah. which is a super fun thing. Um, the way Javier Garon draws them, they've never looked so cool and terrifying and gnarly. And it's also fun. The thing I love about this book, even though you've got wild stuff and it's it's dark and there's weird stuff, it feels fun. It feels like you mm-hmm. what, what you want to read to have the time. And when you're reading a comic book, it's like this big superhero escapist adventure. This book it's is packed. Jam-packed. This reminds me of just like a classic Avengers yeah. issue, like a comic issue. Like, because it is like, here's all this stuff. Here are all these villains. Here are all these heroes. And we're going to leave you just blown away. Yeah. There's a George Perez tribute page at the end, Ugh. which we'll get back to. But the th- before I even got there, there's this other page that uh, is done by the creative team of this issue uh, where you see Nighthawk and the team of Avengers. They're in a round table. And that page to me, I was like, this feels like yep. George Perez Avengers in the like the best way possible. It is the structure of the page, the panels, the layout, the, the framing, the poses of the characters like it felt so loving and so um, reverent of George's work and which I've read that like that was the thought that came into my head. And then you get this big giant final splash page for the, the issue, which should be a dang poster. And then you get this George Perez tribute. Once an Avenger, always an Avenger page. I love George Perez so much. Yeah. All right. It is time to give out some awards. Where are we at with the award business, Jasmine? Yeah, before we blaze through these upcoming comics, let's talk about the awards. All right, last week, we were giving out the You Can't Hypnotize a Snake Award. We have a winner. Damon Tweet tweeted to us. That was a really hard sentence to say. Um, he, he tweeted the panel to us from Electra number 100, where Electra is talking to Typhoid Mary, and they're discussing whether or not you can hypnotize a snake. So that was the You Can't Hypnotize a Snake Award. Damon will be in touch, and we will uh, award you with something fun. Ryan, you ready for this week's award? Yes, please hit me with it. So this week's award is titled The Living Loafs of Cultured Hamburger Award. The Living Loaves of Cultured Hamburger Award has a good ring to it. It's perfect story told in just a quick sentence. Yes, it's really good. So we want everyone to go check that out. Find it in whatever comic it may be. And if you find this quote, screen cap it, tweet it to at Agent M and at Jasmiest with hashtag Marvel's Pull List or email us at pulllist at marvel.com. If you're the first, may send you some surprise, some fun thing. Who knows? Maybe. But we also just want to give shout out to anybody who's hashtagging and throwing up some some stuff for the show. We appreciate you. We see you. Lex Pendragon um, and Karis and everybody else who is. Mountain Meg. Oh, those kids are adorable. Thanks for sharing. Oh, my God. Yes. All right. So are you ready to give out this award for this week's books? You better believe it. All right. Uh, First up, we've got Doctor Strange Nexus of Nightmares. Number one, um, I'm going to give my Living Loaves of Cultured Hamburger Award to this book in general for being such a great single Doctor Strange issue that you could just give to someone to be like, hey, are you excited about Doctor Strange? just because of he's in the zeitgeist and you're curious about this character and you want to read a comic book featuring him, this feels like that platonic ideal of what a Doctor Strange story could be. It is told by, um, it's written by Ralph Macchio, who is a Marvel friggin' legend of 30 years. He's 
He knows the character inside and out and can tell a Doctor Strange story. It brings in Nightmare. It's got great art by Ibrahim Mustafa, who, holy moly, just keeps getting better. Um, definitely, if you have any interest in Doctor Strange and you've never read a Doc Strange book before, or you want to give one to someone, Doctor Strange Nexus of Nightmares might be that one. Definitely. Next up, we have Hulk number six. And this is a conclusion to the Starship Hulk story called Smashernaut. Um, it's Smashernaut Part 6, which is the conclusion to the Smashernaut storyline. I want to give my Living Loaves of Cultured Hamburger Award to Ryan Otley, who draws mm -hmm. a version of Hulk that is one very terrifying, but also just the like epitome of like the Hulk as a an embodiment of rage and hate and like it is scary but also i want to give him an award because there is a, a version of galactus in this book that made me really really scared like i was like if that's for real and not just a vision we got some stuff to worry about definitely looking forward to that all right, let's move on to Shang-Chi number 11, the penultimate issue of this series, uh, because we know in July we're getting a new number one Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Hint, this is a great issue to dive us right into that new number one coming this summer. Um, but I want to give my Living Loaves of Cultured Hamburger Award to the sibling vibes throughout this issue. There's some really sweet moments, some wonderful moments, and getting to see Shang-Chi fighting side by side with his family friggin' rules. I like that a lot. It's so good. I love that family so much. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up, we have Spider-Gwen, Gwen verse number two. And if you've been following along with this story, you know that there's a lot of multiverse shenanigans going on. This issue fried my mind, not only because we get a new Gwen variant introduced in this book, but we get two Gwen variants introduced in this book. And there's a moment in this book that I think is very funny and just like a small little storyline within such a massive story um, that I'm going to give my living loaves of cultured hamburger award too and it is a story that involves the captain america version of gwen stacy finding out that she is being used as a pinup in a calendar that is being issued out by uh the military but the reason why she's upset isn't because i mean she's upset that the fact that this is happening but she's also confused because it's not her and we find out who that variant is and when you find out who it is, it's so funny because it just works with that version of the character or that character's variant. The thing that I love about this book is that like we get all these different versions of Gwen. As much as they are, you know, very much a part of Gwen's personality, there are also parts of these other characters' personalities into built into them. So we get a little bit of Thor in Thor Gwen, we get a little bit of Captain America in Cap Gwen, and the last Gwen that we meet in this book is so much fun. And the complete opposite of Gwen Stacy, really, if you think about it. So mm -hmm. giving it to that. Yeah. All right. So, so many good comics out this week. Also, if you are a Marvel Unlimited subscriber, we got even more for you. X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic 31. We've got White Fox number three. Alligator Loki number four coming this week. But the big one, hootie hoo, Squirrel Ooh. Girl Infinity Comic number one by Ryan North, Derek Charm, and Rico Renzi. This is, of course, a tie-in to the brand new podcast, Marvel Squirrel Girl, the unbeatable radio show, which is a ding-dang delight. Ryan North was writing on that as well, and whew, so much fun. Woo! Which so excited for this podcast, which debuted yes, two days ago. Yes. Uh, we will have Ryan North on the show soon, in a couple weeks. 
And um, I will have Ryan North on This Week in Marvel this week. So we're we're rocking and rolling. We are supporting it. This The show is super duper terrific. I'm so excited for everybody to hear. It's so good. Yeah. And it's exactly what you would expect yeah. a Squirrel Girl podcast to sound like. Amazing. Unbeatable. If you're also looking for stuff for MU, we have a bunch of books coming uh, to MU, including Daredevil Woman of Fear number one, Dark Ages number four. We have the Death of Doctor Strange Bloodstone number one tie-in, uh, which is a lot of fun. We have Marauders 27, Spider-Woman number 18, as well as the Wastelanders Black Widow number one. Yeah, some really, really cool stuff. Over on the collection side, tons of stuff to get into, including Inferno. Inferno. Yeah. Yes. Um, some omnibuses and something that's very important we will be talking about more as we go along in the future is the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game playtest rulebook. We'll certainly get into that a whole bunch more if you don't know what that is yet. It's like a tabletop role-playing game um, where you get to create your own character or use uh, Marvel heroes and villains and play stories and there's dice involved and really cool things this book is the play test so we'll be getting into that more and more as we go along but pick it up at your local comic shop comic shop should have it and uh i'm very excited we're going to be doing a lot with this all right that's a lot of comic talk but guess what we have even more comic book talk because our reading club is coming up next that is with Tochi Anyabuchi, who um, is a great prose novelist, and as you'll learn in our two episodes with him, a former Marvel intern and now a Marvel Comics writer, and he brang the thunder for this uh, conversation because he chose X-Men Executioner's Song, the greatest comic book story of all time, and we're going to get into it. You excited, Jasmine? I'm so pumped. This is the first time I've ever read this story. I was very excited to read it and talk to you guys about it because I know you're both huge fans of it. Yeah, let's it's do it. Such a good book. Jasmine? Yes? Are you ready? Oh, I'm so ready. I feel like this is the first time we're going to talk about the greatest comic book story of all time, but not the last, I'm sure. The story that we're talking about is X-Men Executioner Song, and I am so delighted to bring on our reading club guest, Tochi Onibuchi. Tochi! It is such a pleasure, such an honor, and I could not imagine a better occasion on which to discuss, like you said, the greatest story of all time. It's like, you got the Bible, you got the Godfather, you've got X-Men Executioner song. Is like, <laughs> wow. honestly, like, what else do you need to yeah. have? Yeah, right. yeah, that's it, that's it. I'm not even religious, and this is my Bible. Yes. I could see that. I could totally see that. Like, I can, I can almost, like, parse out the chapters and the, like, <laughs> what are they called, like, verses? Yeah. <laughs> like there's clear verses in this book where I'm like, all right, I'm going to remember that one for later. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's so good. Um, before we get into that, Tochi, I would love if you could explain your history with Marvel. You know, when you started, you know, growing up reading comics, do you have a comic book shop? Um, Cause then we're going to get into some of your career stuff too, but we'd just start. Where'd little Toch start reading comics? Oh my goodness. So I, when I was a young warthog, um, <laughs> probably, probably sometime in, uh, I want to say elementary school. So I was a big, I was a big artist. I loved to draw and I would 
and we get these these three ring binders that were just full of blank sheets of paper they'd have like 500 sheets of paper and i would just like draw in them and sketch in them and i would fill these binders within like two weeks and i loved 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 comics and i would just you know whatever i could get my hands on whatever random issue of like x-men volume two or x-force or x-factor or like a gambit miniseries or like what have you was all over the place um and huge marvel head uh like i think a big a big one for me was spider-man 2099 i just like so much of it for me was the really dope character designs that you would see in these characters in in the 90s and then like a lot of my generation um, my big sort of cohesive intro into a lot of the Marvel universe, particularly the X universe, was through X-Men the Animated Series. Um, Hell yeah. That was that was like my point of entry. That was my introduction to um, the Phoenix Saga and Dark Phoenix Saga, um, the Phalanx, like Apocalypse, all, like all the, the just super, super dope stuff. And that was sort of my gateway because then from there, I could be more sort of concentrated in my search for various like comics storylines and whatnot because you could see what some of those animated storylines were based off of and then I just like you know I was just sort of off to the races and then probably around I want to say like middle school high school was when I finally started being able to track down trade paperbacks and that was oh that like <laughs> now now we're cooking with gas <laughs> oh yeah I know that feeling yep Yep, yep. Which is especially pertinent to, you know, the story that we're going to be discussing today, because, you know, when I was a kid, you know, to to get this story cohesively told, you had to you had to be tracking like four different ongoing books, you know, and the numbering was all over the place. Like you had to make sure that you had like Uncanny X-Men 294, like X-Force 15, X-Men Volume 2, number 15, like you had to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's let the fans also know your sort of origin at mm. Marvel. You know, let's jump in our, our time machine flashback to the fall of 2011. Um, at the time I was in I was in film school. I was doing film school at, at NYU and there was an internship component. And because I was learning like screenplays, stage plays, all that stuff, most of the places where students interned were at like theater companies or maybe production offices or whatever. I was like, I want to intern at Marvel. And I wasn't quite sure if they were going to let me because like, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't Marvel Studios. This was like OG Marvel. This was like the Marvel. Um, but they said yes. And so I applied. And so that was the first step. The second step, which is, you know, even more chancy was that, you know, I had to apply and they had to accept me as, as an intern. So I sent in my application and I think one of the departments I applied for was uh, social media and then they accepted me uh, and it was, it was ink. like, yo, I felt like I'd been handed the keys to the kingdom, but it was also harrowing because the whole time I was like, Toji, don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. Don't mess this <laughs> up. And I had the immense privilege of being supervised by two of the most wonderful human beings. Um, you know, a, a, a great man named, named Ben Morse, who I believe is teaching uh, in Las Vegas right now, UNLV, um, UNLV, um, and the great, the esteemed Ryan Panagos. Um, he's he, okay. Never heard of him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool guy. Cool guy. Um, you should meet him someday. <laughs> 
before we started talking, I was talking to, to Tochi about this, and I was like, Uncanny X-Men 294 comes out a month after I was born. Okay. <laughs> 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 1992. November of 1992. I was born in October. Damn it. But I was just fascinated by how, like, how many books are tied into this? How many X books are coming out at the same time around this time? And also, like, being able to track these things down without the internet to me is, <clears throat> I, I can't even fathom it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting if you think about it that way. I very clearly remember walking to the comic book shop and picking these books up as a, an 11-year-old. You know, I was 11 when these were we, these started to come out, 12-ish by the time the storyline finished. And my comic book shop was Gotham Manor in Floral Park, New York. And it was so cool. And I loved the dudes who ran the shop. They were great. It didn't last terribly long, but it, you know, it's one of those really incredible places. And I remember, you know, I would walk, you know, it was probably like a 15 minute walk to get there and back from my house, but going and getting these issues. And they were so special because Executioner Song, each issue, when you bought them, came polybagged and each issue came with a trading card. Yep. So you were getting yep. the story, you were getting the, you couldn't flip through it in the shop, right? Like you couldn't even be like, oh, I got to know what's happening. You you had to buy it to get your trading card and get the story and like wait to read it. There was this like build of anticipation as you're doing it. You know, there's a lot of reasons why it is so important to me. Obviously there's nostalgia, but I think there's, there's a mystery to it. And if you talk to a lot of X-Men fans and, and the three of us clearly, I think everybody has some X-Men crossover that they connect with. X-Men comics just do that, right? Like they, they yeah. ingrain themselves in you. The characters, the drama, the 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 sweeping storylines, you know, like the, the name of the, so the storyline, Executioner's Song. It is over the top and amazing. I will say I was very disappointed that not a single X-Men or X-Villain sings in this entire <laughs> crossover. Let's write the musical. For... Oh my God. Let's write the musical. Let's yeah, there it. we go. There we go. Uh, the the big villain uh, moment of like stab his eyes. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like so good. Oh, strife. Oh man, Tochi, you you mentioned you were finding these issues and that that great hunt. You were born in what? Eighty seven. Eighty seven. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff because you. So you're like five, six, mm -hmm. somewhere in there, depending on when you get to these. But like, there are just some of us who get to Marvel comics at that age and you, you just can't stop. You have that, yeah. you know, it's like, it's just with you and you, you, you carry it on 30 years. It's, that's so cool, man. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the biggest points of appeal for me was just scope. And this is something that I think I've appreciated in stories my whole life. You know, the fantasy books that really got me into the genre were the wheel of time books by Robert Jordan. You know, even now to this day, I like big novels, right? Like I just, scope is something that I really appreciate. And I don't know anybody that was doing scope and epicness better than the X-Books, particularly in the 90s. Like all you have to say is Age of Apocalypse and that's the end of, yeah. you know, like, yeah. that's, that's, the, that's the tweet, you know? And so yeah. I got to Executioner's Song at precisely the right time. It just, it felt like Greek myth. In many ways, it's an origin story for one of the most like, you know, it's so, well, like sort of an origin story for yeah. like some of the most, <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of sort of an origin story for like some of the most important characters in the Marvel universe. And I think that like 
it was such a beautiful time for that kind of, you know, super melodramatic, but also super like heart-wrenching and, and interesting and dynamic storytelling. And then all those pouches. Oh my God. Oh. Yeah. So many pouches. I, so many pouches. There's, there's some panels where I'm like, this man is 90% just equipment that is attached to him. Yeah. Like there is nothing else. It's like a mountain and then just like a head. Yeah. And he never is like, he doesn't need to go to the store for anything because he's always nope. carrying nope. all the things he needs. He's got every little bit and piece. I mean, it makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense. Like to this day, I always like look at a jacket and be like, how many, how many pockets does it have? Right. Is this like, going to be enough for me? <laughs> and, as, you know, as a kid walking around in cargo pants, it's nice to see yes. myself <laughs> represented in a comic. Look, like, I, finally. Yes, exactly. I know fashionably I should not wear cargo pants, but you <laughs> cannot tell me. They You're do still not wearing serve, cargo pants? Uh, yeah. Cargo shorts? No. Oh, man. That's all I wear over the summer. Ew. Deal with it. Because what do you keep in there? Like anything I need, uh, phone, <laughs> keys, food, wallet, uh, gum, food. a knife, uh, like anything, anything you could possibly need. Mm -hmm. Those pockets will fit so much. They're Swiss Army pockets. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, uh, it's tremendous. <laughs> I think about this story and the comics of my youth a lot in the sense of there is language used, vocabulary used um storytelling tropes and dramatic sweeps and twists and turns that uh, growing up i didn't think of like these were things that a, a kid would read and get into but it is so you know it, it is so formative for me and my tastes for my storytelling sensibilities for my language progression you know it's all those things I, especially as you were a little bit younger tochi i, I imagine you know when some of these writers write things here. It's, it just feels different. No, absolutely. I, I, the language is very heightened. And even when you're reading like the captions in the story, like they're, it's very dramatic. It's oh very like, it's super, it's, it's like Greek myth. Like it's like the type of thing that you would encounter in like the Odyssey. And I really appreciated that as a kid. Cause like tonally it all fit. It all made sense. Like, Okay, Xavier gets shot by a bullet that contains a techno-organic virus, and everybody thinks it's Cable, and we think it's Cable because the dude who shot him looks exactly like Cable and is wearing all of Cable's pouches, but no, it's actually a clone of Cable. Like, when you're even when you're describing it, it sounds so over the top, but I was just eating it up. Like, this is, this is my jam. This is my jam, my jelly, my peanut butter, all of that. It's just like fascinating because you say dramatic and, and like I'm I'm reading it for the first time and there are scenes like even in that first issue there's a scene with like where they're at the uh, Lila Ch Cheney uh, concert and like it's Rogue and Gambit and they're just like hanging out in the back by a tree and it's so dramatic they're just like literally having a small conversation yep. it's like the wind is blowing in the air there's like leaves just flowing in between them mm -hmm. like Storm has her back to like Gambit like looking to the side like. I just can't believe this is happening. Like, I don't know if this is the best way to do this. And I'm just like, oh my God, like, <laughs> who are you guys? And then you flip the page and you get into X Factor headquarters and multiple man is doing a, t a like uh, a conga line with himself while the rest of the team is sitting there. It's like every, there's so much packed into yeah. every single page in here because they are fitting 
dozens of heroes, dozens of villains, locations, motivations, feelings, histories. It is spectacular. Uh, I want to sort of back up a second and couch this in a different sense because this is like a year, give or take, removed from the image founders leaving, Mm -hmm. more or less. So, you know, Jim Lee is gone. Wills Portacio, gone. Um, Rob Liefeld gone uh, and the rest of them. But you think about the core, so many core X-Men creators who had put indelible marks on the X-Books years before this. Chris Claremont is, has moved on from, from the X-Men stuff. So these titles are, they have to make moves like this. They have Mm -hmm. to do something big and something cool and something important to show that like, Hey, the X-Men are still the X-Men. We mm-hmm. we can still tell these stories even if we don't have the biggest names in comics. We still have all these amazing creators who will actually be some of the biggest names in comics as well later on. It's fascinating to me to to couch it in a historical sense which we you know like that this was a place where they probably I imagine were looked at as like ah the X-Men are over. Yeah. You know? No, totally. Mm-hmm. And like exactly what you said, I, I literally had it written down like in my notes. They swung for the fences. Like they were like, all right, this is our moment to like prove to everybody that like this book isn't going to go anywhere. We're still here. We're going to still tell these amazing stories. And like what better way to do it than to like tackle the origin story of one of the most popular characters at this time yeah. um, in the X-Men. Yeah. Cable. And big swings uh, also for... You build a story and Toshi, you're you're a, a storyteller of, of many kinds and like, OK, you have one core villain, but this series has multiple core <laughs> villains. Yes. Machiavellianly is <laughs> that is even a word pulling strings and moving around against each other and battling each other, battling the heroes. You know, you get Apocalypse Strife, Mr. Sinister and their crews. Yeah. Which like, oh, and also you God. have Mr. Sinister impersonating Apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> Like, I, I was so confused reading this because I was like, I, I thought Strife was the big bad guy in this book. But because, again, I've never read it. Um, and I was just like, OK, Sinister's in it. OK, now we're getting Apocalypse. Like, what is going on? And I was also doing research on this. And they originally Magneto was going to yeah. also be brought back to life in this series. And I'm like, that would have been insane. Like, they were like, no, 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 no. You know, we have one too many bad guys in here. Like, there's too many people already here. Let's chill a little bit. Like, let's save Magneto for later. Yeah, where he rips out Wolverine's adamantium skeleton. Um, yes. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> it was supposed to be here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, yeah. Peter David, like, that's what he said. Like, he was like, I wanted to do that in this book, but decided to save it to later. And I'm like, uh, okay. Oh, Which yeah. is good. Yes. Yeah, no, totally. I'm glad you yeah. did. No, but I think, oh, wow. I think that speaks to a very interesting facet of this story that I really was only able to appreciate coming back to it later, which is the juggling of so many subplots. And one of them that really stands out to me now is the Archangel Apocalypse relationship and the evolution of that. Because there's almost something like filial going on between them because Apocalypse turned Angel into Archangel and he's been battling with so much of this self-loathing and but like also being super more powerful than he was before, but also you know, dealing with the guilt of having been used for evil ends and whatnot. We see the arc of their whole relationship as like not even a B plot, but like a C plot in this. And then you get to the end and Apocalypse is like, yo, just like 
kill me in an honorable way. And yes. Yes. and Archangel's like, no, you don't deserve I'm going to let you just sit here and die. <laughs> And I'm like, yo, that's so gangster. Yeah, I was I was like, I've never rooted more for Angel in my life. Right? I was just like, hell yeah. Like, <laughs> good, good on you. Like, yes. damn right. Yeah. Tochi, I, I super appreciate the way you explained that and talked about that because it, I've read this literally dozens of times, but I've never thought about Angel's perspective in it because he's not really one of my favorite characters, but mm-hmm. Archangel's perspective as survivor's guilt which is what it is and and coming at it from that perspective and the way he's he deals with it and the darkness and it's that's just another layer that uh, a friggin love and that that storyline is six years of like baked in bits and pieces that yeah. come through in here and it's um so good one thing we should really do is talk about the the creators for this mm. uh, because it is jam-packed this is so structurally this is a really interesting thing. We're getting back to this kind of uh, crossover a lot more lately. It is not centered in one event story, like we have War of the Realms or The King in Black. It is across multiple titles, and it's something that the X-Men series have done very well over time because there are always so many friggin' X-Men books, <laughs> which is uh, which is great. And so um, this is, at its core... 12 parts across four different X-Men team titles. And so it's Uncanny X-Men, X-Factor, X-Men, X-Force. And so you go one, two, three, four, and then it would go back around. So each series would have three parts uh, to tell the full 12 issues. Then there, um, we'll get into it a little bit later. There are two great epilogues. There's a like handbook style book that if you have the collection, you'll see those that in there as well. The writers for this, Scott Lubdell, Fabian Nicieza, and Peter David. Pencils by Brandon Peterson, Andy Kubert, Jay Lee, Greg oh. Capolo. Mm. Mm. It's just bananas. Uh, amazing inks and colors and letters throughout by just names upon names. I know, Jasmine, you wanted to shout out uh, one of the colorists. Yeah, Marie Jevons, which I did not know was a part of this collection at all like i saw her name and i was like wow that's insane um because she is now the editor-in-chief over at dc yeah which you know you work your way through comics and everybody's everybody's got to start somewhere doing things and you know look she was a part of the greatest comic book story of all time it makes sense that she would be running a comic book uh company you know i mentioned some of those names i close my eyes and i see panels from this series. I think about the way Jay Lee draws darkness and shadows and is inked and colored throughout this. Greg Capullo, I think about there's like shots of Cannonball and Wolverine in here that are just frozen in my mind. Andy Kuber, Brandon Peterson, there's certain things that he does with textures and, and character work in here that I'm just like bananas. There's this emaciated beast moment. That where oh, he gets mm-hmm. he gets messed up by uh, famine, one of the horsemen of apocalypse that like will never leave my brain. No, yeah. I'm scarred. I think one of the things that I really appreciated about it too, about this story and about so much of the art in it was, you know, especially being at the age that I was at, the fight scenes because they were like operatic, and that was something that, especially when you're juggling so many different characters. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I that I return to a lot 
is in in a lot of the sort of big fantasy work when there's a final battle it's also a confluence of a lot of different storylines you see this a lot in anime too and you know the ideal is that the the combat will have emotional resonance that it will in and of itself be the culmination of a storyline or at least a major plot point and it won't necessarily be you know just a just gratuitous fan service and it gets so much more complicated when you have like you know, three different storylines you're wrapping up in a single battle, four different storylines. And what I find so impressive about Executioner's Song is that like every single fight scene is emotionally laden. Like, and, and like you will you will have fight scenes that are like eight characters deep. And yeah. it's ridiculous. It's like, I want to know the outcome of every single fight in this book. And because you're getting so many teams and so many factions uh, even on the villain side you're getting new matchups mm -hmm. which is really interesting seeing the mutant liberation front fighting mm -hmm. the x-men when they've previously been fighting the new mutants and and x-force um and seeing the uh, apocalypses you know his his people which they switch sides and they move around mm -hmm. and seeing the you know various different groups coming this way and going that way and that's really special how do we want to, I mean, we've been bouncing around a lot of these things. We talked a little bit about that first issue. It starts with Uncanny 294 and there's this big concert and it's sort of this unifying humanity and mutant kind together, peace and love. And they, a lot of the X-Men are there sort of doing security. Um, we get a lot of wonderful, some of our favorite moments of like just the cool down, chill X-Men mm -hmm. stuff. Like Iceman and Colossus going shopping. Um, yeah, I love that. Cyclops <laughs> daydreaming about Psylocke while Jean Grey is oh. in the bathroom is <laughs> like, <sighs> yep. holy. Uh, there's a whole bunch of wonderful moments in that first issue culminating with Professor Xavier getting on stage and giving this, this speech and, and sort of bringing people together and then getting shot in the head. And the, that amazing cliffhanger, that reason why, oh, you are full in on this crossover from, from that is it's cable smoking gun. Mm -hmm. He's done it. Uh, if I remember correctly, he has, there's a line. Yeah. He's like, holy, someone shot professor Xavier. And then cable quote unquote says, not just anyone, pal, the name is cable, but the world will know me as the man who saved tomorrow. That's amazing because it's like when when you when you get the revelation later on, you realize who it actually was. It's just like he's literally like, "It was me, Cable, like yes. the man who saved tomorrow." You know, the guy from the future, this guy right here. Like yep. he's like making sure very clearly to pin it on himself. Yep. Yeah. And then we get like reactions and stuff, but that first issue just send you skyrocketing into the next, you know, 11 parts. Mm -hmm. And then you get that Jay Lee goodness, the way Jay Lee draws muscles. Like, yes. I mean, yes. come on. Everybody's muscles. Professor Xavier is yes. swole as hell <laughs> yes. laying on I a don't, gurney. I don't understand how shoulders worked in the nineties, <laughs> but they are so broad. Like they are like 90% of the character. It's yes. just like shoulders and then a face. It's great. Yeah, yeah, you look at yeah part of it like Shatterstar wearing shoulder pads, but then you flip the page, Bishop standing next to to Storm. Bishop yep. is at least fifteen feet tall, ten feet wide, and yeah. wearing those tiny little glasses. It's, 
it's like Morpheus, everything. like from the Matrix yes. glasses. Like yep. they don't even have like the sides. It's just they're just floating there. Yep. Okay. Here's a question I had because yeah. I was trying to figure out where in Bishop's timeline this story takes place because he is so trigger happy in this book. Yeah. He's like, only he's, been around for a couple of months at this right, point. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Because yeah. like he is like ready for I think. blood. And I'm like, whoa, Bishop, chill. Like every moment that he gets, like he's like, let's go kick their butts. And I'm like, dude, we're chill. One of the things that I also loved about the 90s and particularly the X-Books in the 90s was the Cable Bishop Dyad. Mm -hmm. They're both time travelers. They both came from dystopian futures, albeit like different futures. And they both come back in time to prevent those futures from happening. And if I remember correctly, both of them have been accused of killing Professor Xavier. <laughs> hmm. There's all kinds of wild stuff, but so yeah, I, I just checked. It was 287 and 288 where Bishop first appears. Rest in peace, Malcolm and Randall. And so they, we've we, we've only got a couple of months of who Bishop is and what's going on. And there's this. I think it's been shown at that point. There's this huge mystery of what Bishop mm -hmm. came back from the future and what he saw. And there's this like this someone who murdered the X-Men and that's like part of what he's dealing with. So his oh, trigger yeah. happiness comes from, he knows that like there is this giant tragedy and he's like, is there a way for me to, to stop it? And if I don't pull the trigger, am I complicit in the look at, look at how her baggage? Like, right? like look at how ugh. dramatic that is. What? <laughs> and He's probably only like 25 years old. Like thinking about how it may be a little bit older, but like he, he always feels a little bit older, but he's probably not, you know, like these characters are most likely younger than we think of them as. And so like they go through so much yeah. horror and trauma. Look, I could tell he was 25 years old just by his hair. And it, like, yeah. like he said, I need to make sure he's like, I'm back in the past. I got to make sure I get this like hairstyle done. Like get my Jerry curls going. Yeah. I need, I need my luscious Jerry locks. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know how many black people worked on these comics in 1992, but I've always loved Bishop's look. I like I think about my first issue of Wizard, um, which was Wizard number eight. And the reason I picked it up was because Wills Portacio drew the cover and it had Bishop on the cover draped in the wizard like cape thing. But like Bishop was just a character that you looked at him and you went, that dude's cool. I want to know his story. Yeah. Where, oh, did, where did the M everything. tattoo come it's from? Like, you know, like, mm, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. like, it's for his mom. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he wanted to honor his mom, right? That's exactly. where it came from. And everybody gets shoulder yeah. tattoos. So he was like, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we, we haven't touched on yet, and I think going through it now, especially looking at these Jay Lee issues, mm. is the humor. This book, like, there, it's funny. Of course, Peter David is going to write really funny stuff in the pages of X factor, but Jay Lee's drawings really nail that stuff. At times there's this moment where um, strong guy is like getting his chin scratched and being called cupcake. And it's really funny. And then the next panel is havoc and Val Cooper looking at each other with the side. eye, <laughs> like what's happening there. It is so good. Yeah. It's really funny. And like, there's this panel where you've got strong guy and um and wolfsbane hopping away and they're all in silhouette but just the simple act of the way that they're drawn mm -hmm. like it's comical 
It is great. Even in the midst of chaos and then Bishop snarling so hard that yeah. his yeah. teeth would There's break. so much grinning in Jay Lee's art. It's like yeah. all all the characters completely in shadow, but you can see his teeth. Yeah. Be yes. sure. You can yep. see his teeth. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I keep mentioning there's things about these books that I will always, you know, stick with me. I think of Havoc yelling at the X-Force kids as they're mm-hmm. like blasting away in their broken down ship. He says, you know, as long as I'm here to cry Havoc and he blasts off one of their engines. And I just thought, man, he was, yeah, he was yeah. I, moments. This issue did, you or this, this book did a lot for me to be like, okay, Havoc's not like a bad guy. Like, It's interesting too. So jumping towards, to the end and going back to the issue of, of language, even now in sort of current day, you know, comic storylines and particularly the X storylines where there does still seem to be very heightened drama. A lot of the language is, is more colloquial than it was back then. But like essentially what happens is that there is, you know, everybody's gathered on the moon for the big climactic fight, Cable versus Strife. And then there's a time vortex that, Cable forces him and Strife into essentially, you know, quote unquote, killing them. At and like, I think either at that point or a little before, you know, Cyclops and Jean Grey have this moment where Cyclops is racked with guilt that he's had to sacrifice his son again. It's never explicitly mm-hmm. said, though. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And he, he basically, it's very cryptic. And he says something mm-hmm. along the lines of like, you know, I'm never going to forget this day. And Gene's trying to like talk him out of his guilt. And I think it's page 290 of our edition. And it's, you know, the first panel, you know, he was that in order to save us all. We had to sacrifice him a second time. And Gene's like, Scott, no, you don't think. And Cyclops is like, I don't know, Gene. I don't know if we'll ever be sure. And then the last panel, but I do know this, I'm going to spend the rest of my life thinking about today, thinking about him and wondering, God help me, I'll never stop wondering. And it's like, yo, like Cyclops used to talk like that. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. And like that whole fight there is so cool because like everybody gets knocked on their asses yes, unless exactly. they have that Summer's was a moment DNA where I was like, and they're like, all right, guys, like, can we just say what it is? Like, okay. So like, we can talk about this as we continue moving through this book. But like the thing that just like, that I found so fascinating is that like, it's never made clear. Mm-hmm. Like it's never spoken of. It's never like said that like, you know, Cable is Scott's kid. And like, at first I found it to be like a very like infuriating, like creative choice. But I, like, immediately understood why they did it. Mm -hmm. And, like, because they want people talking about these books. They want people to have this conversation. And it gives, it doesn't give a definitive answer because, like, some of the best stories do that. Like, they want you to think. They want you to discuss with your friends because that's storytelling at its best. Oh, yeah. No, the the theorizing was just why. I mean, your, your reaction is exactly what, like, so many of us were feeling at the time. Also, because in the lead up to this, this storyline was being teased as, you're going to get Cable's origin story. Like it's going to be confirmed. And then when that didn't happen, everybody, like people were up in arms. They, I believe like, it. Yeah. Pitchforks, pitchforks. Like, like if this book had come out today, like I can already see the Reddit threads. I can oh already see like people busting out the, like the red string, trying to draw all the, like, the, like yeah. I can only imagine what it was like back then, especially as like, you know, I mean, like, I grew up in an area where there weren't a lot of other comic book readers that, like, my age. Mm-hmm. So I would be, like, trying to, like, find every single little piece of, like, evidence to prove one th- way or another. And, like, 
that's that's just part of the fun. Right? And it's like, is Stripe the sun and Cable's yes. the clone? You know, because all the, the whole time Stripe or Are they from like, different alternate like timelines? Exactly. Like one where like because the whole time Strife is, you know, Strife is like, you ruined my childhood. And like he like the whole reason that Cyclops and Gene get captured is so that he can exact his revenge on the parents who abandoned including him. including nurturing them by feeding them with his own mouth. That was so gross. Oh. Like he's like hand fed feeding Scott, like just globs of baby food like here this is what you're supposed to do to a baby right take care of them nurture them feed them oh like, it's so chill. psychotic <laughs> he, he really, really did, did. <laughs> strife just needed a hug y'all just a he grew up in this war-torn future nightmare just and just would have saved us at least just a couple of hugs issues. like oh yeah them. oh you all you know what it also would have saved yeah. us from the legacy virus yes i thought that that was yes okay please well We'll get to that at the end, because man, that is just that's a that's a dunk on everything. It's so good. When I yeah. saw that, I was like, "Wait, I think I know what this is." And yeah, immediately was just like, "That's yeah, planting the seed." Like I blown away by that. Big thanks to Tochi for coming on the show. And honestly, I don't think any of us were prepared to have a two-hour conversation about this. I Look, I'm always prepared to have multiple-hour conversations about this series. I have four copies of this collection. Plus, I think I still have my single issues from when I was 10 years old. So it's great. That is amazing. And I, as, as an editor of podcasts, I also did not expect this to be two hours. We usually <laughs> record for about an hour to put into context yeah. for our listeners. And this one was like, I, I looked at Kara and I was like, Kara, our other producer on the show. And I was like, we're gonna have to tag team this one because this one's, whew, I know. it is packed. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like X-Force and X-Factor and the X-Men tag teaming together to take down uh, the MLF, right? It's just like all that. the, all the X cross <laughs> yes. faded. Uh, but we, we will come back next week with another uh, conversation, finishing up Executioner's Song with Tochi and get into some hype about um, the Captain America book that he's working on and more. It's real fun. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully you didn't burn out at the end of this conversation. I you don't care keep... if you did. Like, pick yourself up <laughs> Finish on the, floor. the book. You got to do it. This is a good damn comic. Enjoy it. Get mm-hmm. nerdy with us. Let's have some yeah. fun here. Um, all right. That's a wrap for us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Jasmine Estrada, and Kara McGurk-Allison. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List senior manager of audio production and development. And did you realize that he didn't come to work today? I don't know. He, he said that it was a holiday and he wanted to take his holiday off. He wanted to celebrate. Mm, you know what? Good for him. He always likes the middle of, of April to just relax, be super chill. Have yeah. his me time, as it were. Yeah, as it were. Um, which is, like, good for him. Yeah. Proud of him. Yes. Good on you, Brad. Take a day. Yeah, take a day. I'm Ryan. I'm Jasmine. And this is Marvel. Your universe.